Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, Episode 72, The International Space Station Begins, Part 1. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, NASA scientists, engineers, and astronauts, all to let you know the coolest information about what's going on here at NASA. So 20 years ago, on November 20th, 1998, the first element of the International Space Station called Zarya was launched to space. It was the first step towards two decades of international cooperation, scientific research, and discovery. We're sort of used to talking about the International Space Station now. Crews come and go and long duration journeys. And during each journey, the astronauts are conducting hundreds of experiments, doing spacewalks, and making it all look relatively routine. But of course, to get to this point, you had to start somewhere. And that was with Zarya, the first element of the space station, designed, constructed, and flown as a joint effort between Russia and NASA. It was a critical step and a critical module to provide power, propulsion, guidance, and all the essentials that would enable the first modules to be attached and to function properly. So with me to tell this story of the first element is Doug Drury. He's the former FGB program manager and launch package manager for the mission. You hear us say uh, FGB a lot. It stands for functional cargo block, but a G instead of a C since it's translated from Russian. Doug had a variety of jobs during his 22 years at NASA, including leading the joint U.S. and Russian teams for the successful development and launch of Zarya. He's now the president and owner of his own aviation company. So, with no further delay, let's jump right ahead to our talk with Doug Drury to tell the story of our first steps in this, the 20th anniversary of the International Space Station. Enjoy. T-minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Launch commit lighter to the red. Here she goes. Houston, we have a podcast. Doug, thank you so much for uh, coming on the podcast today to celebrate 20 years of the International Space Station. Thanks for having me. All right. Uh, we're we're going to take it all the way back, for, uh, and even beyond that, I think, because uh, 20 years ago was the actual launch of Zarya, but, but it started even before that, and it started even before it was Zarya. So sort of set the scene. Before, before this even came into place, what was happening at NASA? Where were we? Well, we started Space Station back... Uh way back with Space Station Alpha. That evolved into Space Station Freedom. Uh, we went through several redesigns of Space Station Freedom. There was a major redesign uh, a few years before we started talking to the Russians. It was called the Pre-Integrated Trust Redesign, where um, I ended up leading the MB3 and MBA, which was the S1 and P1 segments that are on orbit today. Hmm. Um, it's the Pre-Integrated Trust. And then uh, we went uh, up to our critical design review on that when there was another station redesign. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were, um, we're we, at the time we were divided into work packages. Uh, JSC was work package two. Um, I don't remember which who had all the other work packages, but you had uh, power being done out of one place uh, and all these various things. So anyway, we were. Um, we were told to redesign and with a new inclination we were supposed to go to 51.6 degrees of inclination which we knew is where the russians were flying but uh, of course every time we queried that it was denied that had anything to do with it it was just supposed to be another redesign of the station which we'd been through so many times before for budget cuts and this and that right um 
JSC did an option C, which was a single launched orbit, an SLC option, which was basically modifying a, a shuttle external tank and fitting it out with various levels. Uh, Marshall took basically the Freedom design, much like the current space station, and instead of back in the work package two days where we were launching uh, outboard in, we were launching um, solar arrays first, then uh, propulsion modules, so we'd have command and control on orbit, and we kind of built up to the point where we built the truss first and then added the pressurized modules and brought in crew. Uh, Marshall took the approach of bringing up the modules first and then building outward on the truss to power them. Um, so several different, I mean, this is a very dynamic time with the, inter, this idea of a space station is there, but what, you know, how do we make this a possibility? And everyone's redesigning it, trying to come up with the right strategy. Um, you're going through design reviews, but don't even know what, what the space station is gonna look like at this point. Uh, but you understand that uh, maybe there's some collaboration coming down the road. Well, space station freedom was really, pretty far along and it's mm. it's i mean we were cutting metal and and uh, building hardware already oh okay and it's largely the u.s segment that's on orbit today huh. it's just the approach for putting it together was radically different um, again one of the politically expedient things was to get crew on orbit as soon as possible hmm. and under the freedom program we were a few years into the building segments up before we ever brought crew on board so it was shuttle flights, we would leave it on orbit for a period of time. And there, so there was a real effort to change that. Mm -hmm. um, the last redesign that, that uh, threw in the 51.6 inclination really hurt us performance-wise. That took about 30% of the shuttle's carrying capability out to go to that higher inclination orbit. Oh, really? So that was a big impact on the... We couldn't just fly the pre-integrated truss segments like and the modules like we had planned with Freedom because the shuttle didn't have the carrying capability now at the higher inclination. Hmm. So one of the things Marshall did on their option, uh, they were option A, I believe, um, is they offloaded racks and things in the modules. Um, we um, on, did different things to the truss to try to lighten it up and and be able to carry it up to that higher inclination. So. Bottom line is um, Marshall was announced as the winner of the, the competition and that we were going <laughs> to build Space Station Alpha, I think it was. Or that was the other one that was called at first. And, um, and in the meantime, we were, there were a few of us pulled off to the side and said, well, let's see if we can integrate the Russians into this. Hmm. And uh, we went through uh, weeks and weeks of meetings in Crystal City to uh, meet with Russian counterparts and, and uh mostly people from RSA at the time. Although, honestly, I was involved in a lot of those meetings and Krunachev rep representatives were there and I don't remember them ever being introduced as being anything other than with the Russian contingent and that they were part with RSA or, uh, or Energia. Oh. So um, the bottom line is we, uh, we came up with a, a viable assembly sequence, had the service module as the first element and uh, the node was several elements down before we could get it up uh, because again we had that problem you have to once you put something on orbit you have to be able to drive it around the sky so you have to have propulsion you have to have command and control uh, you have to have an ability to, to keep it up there reboost if necessary um, so we've at some point formally adapted or adopted that we were going to be working with russians okay um, 
And uh, interestingly, in it was October of 93, I got a phone call on, a, I believe it was on a Thursday, about noon, said, go over to Building X and get your picture taken. You're flying to Russia tomorrow. And I met several other people from here that uh, were in the same boat. We were all getting our picture taken. They explained to us that our passports would be meeting, us. we'd be stopping in D.C. on the way over, and uh, they'd meet us there with our passports and our visas. <laughs> and uh, mine was one of two that didn't make it in D.C., so I spent an extra night in D.C., uh, <laughs> flew into Moscow the next day. And we spent, uh, I want to say we spent about a week meeting with the Russians again. Huh. Uh, Dave Mobley from Marshall led that team. There was probably, I don't remember the number, close to 20 of us, 18 to 20 of us that went over there. And this wow. was this was right about the time they were the Russian tanks had fired on the, the White House in, in Moscow. So Politically, it, it, it was, was... It was an interesting time to interesting be there. Interesting time, yeah. Um, I remember my first impressions of flying into Moscow was uh, it was all black and white, except for the red stars and red pictures of Lenin on the sides of every building and statues everywhere. Wow. And uh, as a contrast to when we left... I tell everybody it was in pastels. It was uh, it was a totally different place than when we first flew in. But wow! Um, so why why the speed? Why why were you, why did you have to go so fast? Um, we were sent over. <laughs> the direction we were given was that uh, call it semi official, however you want to couch that. But we were told we needed to go come up with a we we the Soviet Union has was breaking up. Hmm. Uh, they needed money desperately. Um, our White House had de- decided that we were going to give them money to keep them from selling nuclear weapons to other people to raise cash. Okay. And NASA was, was one of the mechanisms to do that. Huh. Um, so we were sent over specifically with the directive that the first module had to be a U.S. module and that U.S. astronauts had to be on board before Russian astronauts. Okay. And uh, so we went over and uh, we tried... Oh, for a good week to try to manipulate the sequence to make that happen. And there's just no way, because, again, we needed that command and control function up front. And um, meekly out of the back of the room, this gentleman stands up and said, well, we could do that with an FGB. And um, we broke into that discussion for the next uh, rest of the day, and it turned out it was Khrunichev suggesting what became the FGB that was based on one of their um, one of their military uh, vehicles that they had built they've used for many years I guess so FGB did not originally mean functional cargo no block. it was always functional cargo block but oh, that's different than the FGB that we're flying on orbit <laughs> okay so, um, okay yeah quite interestingly and and uh, and we thought we had agreement and we came in the next morning and uh, Energy and RSA told us that that wasn't going to work, and hmm. and we threatened to walk out after half a day and uh, leave Moscow, and and uh, they finally agreed to meet with us again. And that afternoon, uh, the administrator and Bill Shepard, who was the uh, program uh, manager at the time for space station, huh. um, he flew over with George Abbey, and we met with them in the afternoon, and told them what was going on, and and. Uh, the next day, we briefed the concept with the FGB to um, Golden and Koptev, which wow. was ahead of the Russian Space Agency. So and this was definitely not a straightforward process. Oh, no, it was. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, when, uh, interestingly, when we were actually 
doing the briefing to Koptev and Golden the next day, uh, the Russians again objected uh, in Russian this time. Mm. And uh, Koptev called an end of the meeting and sent all the Americans out of the room and uh, called us back in about 30 minutes later and said we could get on with the meeting now. And, and what he explained to us was that RSA had objected. Uh, one of the things they said was that, uh, you know, the uh, FGB, some of the systems were built in the Ukraine. And, and you know how those Ukrainians are. <laughs> and uh, and Koptev proceeded to tell us that uh, the Ukrainians built the systems for the Energia modules as well. And uh, so it was really a non-argument. It was just another attempt to keep Khrunichev out of the loop, I think. Huh. And uh, bottom line is we left Moscow with an agreement, with an assembly sequence. And it had the FGB. It's the best we could do is the FGB was the first element. The node was the second element. So we would get... Uh, a U.S. module up before the service module. Uh, our direction had been the U.S. lab before the Russian lab, but we, the node was the best we could do because, again, we, we needed some power. Yeah. And, uh, and basically, we, uh, we flew up 2A with the node as a second flight, mm. and then it was almost a year before the service module would come up as a third flight. So, right. Um, yeah, it was just the two for a while. But yeah, yeah, we drove, drove it around for about a year. That's where... We had to put a lot of requirements on the FGB. Um, basically, the FGB is the keystone of the space station. Hmm. It, uh, it's the thing that holds the Russian segment and the U.S. segment together. It's got uh, all the fluid, power, every um, AC, inter all the interfaces go through that module and had to be built into that module. Yeah. It, uh, it's bigger than the Russian original core module was. It's got a different power system. We had to run on 120 volt power to be compatible with the U.S. stuff. We put that uh, docking ball on the front, which was bigger than anything the Russians had ever done, hmm. which in we had to build uh, build in an A-pass or a docking system to dock with the shuttle because 2A was going to come up and dock to that, and we wanted to uh, be able to do that. Mm -hmm. We had to make the uh, solar arrays retractable. Um, we uh, we've got U.S. computers in the module, um, MDMs and things. So it's radically different than anything the Russians had had done before. Was this um, kind of decided after all the meetings, and then, or was it kind yeah. of at that meeting in Moscow? We came up with this sequence, sure. And then uh, we actually left that meeting with um, the FGB was going to be a Russian contribution to the space station, hmm. and they were supplying it. Sometime, I believe in November, they came over. This would be November of '93, and um, and we agreed to pay. I think it was 7.9 million dollars for modifications that we needed to their hardware hmm. to to the FGB to make it do some of the functions we did. And that included the docking mechanism, the solar arrays, or were these separate? Uh, it included some of those things. Some of them came up later. I okay. mean, it's like any other design. Sure. Geograph uh, engineering, it looks good on paper, and as you actually start building, you run into other things. Yeah. Um, so we, we did make other a lot of modifications along the way. Okay. Um, but uh, I had a, a full-time team of U.S. specialists and and Russian specialists, we, we actually built an office in the Krunichev plant in Moscow, hmm. um, which showed up as a park on their on their maps. It was, uh, <laughs> Krunichev was primarily a military supplier, I guess you would. Oh, interesting. And, uh, yeah, so you couldn't find it on a map. And, uh, 
it was it was an interesting place to be. Wow. <laughs> so. Yeah. So that that was kind of interesting because it didn't just you didn't just start and everything was collaborative. You know, it was it was definitely a process to get to where you needed to be, which was a module that was both a U.S. and Russian module that worked for the purpose of, like you said, holding the space station together. Sure. Yeah. And we. Uh, so we, it was a big collaborative effort from the beginning on, we knew, we all recognized we were going to have to make modifications and they were going to be pretty serious modifications, but yeah. we were still, it was still couched as part of the Russian contribution to the station. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until we were probably six months into the design, um, mm-hmm. uh, working with, with Russians on a daily basis and multiple trips there and stuff that all of a sudden we got word from headquarters one day saying that, uh, the Russians had come to them saying the FGB was a solution to our political problem. Oh, boy. That the old st- old sequence would have worked fine, and therefore we should be paying for it. Huh. And Boeing took over as a prime contractor. So, oh, okay. Um, but part of that decision to uh, for us to fund the FGB included, I, I, I insisted that we had to have better access to the hardware, and that's where they ended up building a wall, uh, an office just inside the plant wall. We had a, an outside entrance. We could get into it without going through their security every time. And I kept it staffed with two people, and we uh, we were in and out of there all the time and, and in the plant. It was um, such a different environment working with the Russians than what we were used to on the U.S. side. Um, we, and again, keep in mind, this was, a, was an ex-military hardware for them, or maybe current military hardware. Hmm. And so every time we wanted to see design details, um, we basically got to the point where I would send one or two people from our meeting there, whoever had the most direct interest, they would take them back into a, a vault room, pull out the original drawings, and as a, on the U.S. side, you know, we, we did everything electronically. We had drawings and everything. Hmm. Um, on the Russian side, they pulled out original hard copy prints and you could see initials for changes through the years for the last 15 years and every time they'd made a change so it was really uh, a different way of doing business from what we had seen originally yeah so not only was the actual collaborating on who does what and everything but just a different way to do things a different process oh entirely Uh, yeah that's interesting. And a different language to communicate it through. <laughs> it was, uh, of course, we had interpreters uh, yeah. all the time. And uh, and a lot of our people picked up Russian along the way. I think I've forgotten more Russian than I learned. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it was it was very interesting. It was an interesting time to be over there. Okay. Um, so so tell me about actually going over and and the actual working part. So you're, you're in Moscow. You're in this... Uh, park, I guess, uh, you say, uh, working on all of this, but you know, some of it, like I think is manufactured in Ukraine. Is that, did I get that? No, right? it was just, uh, some of the components. I think components some, are of from the, Ukraine. Uh, some of the GNC components were made there. Okay. Um, you know, Russia, one of the things we ran into going over there was that, uh, um, and one of the problems, frankly, I had with the contractors on the first part on our side was in our own, um, contracting office was, the way we do business in the U.S. is we try to figure out a fair market value for something hmm. and uh, uh, try to understand what the actual costs are. 
when we got and one of the things when we first went to moscow is we heard that their engineers hadn't been paid for six months or something oh, wow. that they were in such bad shape um one of the things or a couple of things learned on that was that uh first it was virtually impossible to figure out what costs really were because the whole russia soviet union thing was was basically a almost a barter system where the uh, the government supplied everything so the government the people in the power plants got food and supplies and things they needed and they supplied the power to the uh, refineries that smelted the metal and hmm. and they got what they needed and they supplied it to here and there and so basically when we get down to the aerospace level the the uh, people at Krunichev or Energia or RSA really didn't know what the materials cost and really didn't know what labor cost. The whole thing about the Russians not being paid, I asked one of them one time on one of those early meetings, I said, so if you haven't been paid for six months, why are you still here? And he shrugged his shoulders and said, what else would I do? Hmm. And it turned out that they actually lived in company housing. Uh, their food and supplies were were supplied by the company. In this case, the company is technically the government. Huh. And that, uh, you know, the the pay that they didn't get was was their incidental, you know, their play money or is kind of what it was. So it oh. wasn't like they were like here you didn't get a paycheck and and you didn't know how you were going to eat or pay your rent. That was all taken care of for them. Wow. And uh, so it was it was really a uh, hard thing for people on our side to to understand. It took me quite a while to understand. Yeah. And one of the biggest frustrations that that I had early on and I think unfortunately set the stage for where we are today is is I would go over there with a team of people and I'd usually bring you know 10 to 12 people with me when I when I travel over different technical experts but we would sit down and we would over a week negotiate a deal on something well once we uh, once we did you know come up with an agreement whether right. or not it was right. uh, the most efficient agreement you know we came up with an agreement, and they got what they needed to build certain hardware. You're in Moscow. Where is everything being built? Where is everything being tested? How is it being relayed back to the U.S.? Um, we were we were actually building the FGB in the Krunichev plant there in Moscow. Okay. Uh, we were bringing U.S. components over there. Um, you know, there was when we set up the contract. One of the things that they wanted was to build a um, uh, test article. They wanted to build a flight article and a test article, which we had originally had back in the early days of space station. But that's one of the things we had scrubbed out along the way is is this duplicate hardware, hmm. um, and and we had to come up with a different way to figure out how we were going to integrate modules, uh, since the first time they would physically see them each other would be on orbit in a lot of cases. Right. And that's one of the things that happened with the FGB too. Um, so we were. We were doing a lot of integration work on both sides. Um, we, I almost constantly had people in Moscow, uh, depending on what stage of the build we were in, uh, what was going on. The full-time representatives that I had in our in our FGB office there um, kept us informed much better than we would have otherwise. We, um, I don't, not many people know I think, but the FGB that's on orbit today was actually cut in half at one point because. It actually was uh, over-tested and blew out the end of the module during a test. Really? Yes. And uh, 
one of the ways we found out about that was we found out immediately because of our resident people there in the in that plant um and it took it was a it was a fight to make sure we had our people involved in in the resolution of the problem and ultimately uh, we decided jointly with the russians that uh they would cut the end of the module off and weld a new piece on and <laughs> and that's the one that's on orbit so you know, oh. The team did a great job. It's welded and, of yep. course, tested to make oh, yeah. sure. And it's oh, held yeah. for this long. So. Oh, yeah. yeah. We, yeah. we had an original requirement to um, our build life is supposed to be 10 years with renewable to 15 years. And obviously we're going up on coming up on 20 now. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and I don't see any problems for going further. So, <laughs> so how was the uh, how are the teams in, in Moscow rotated out? Did they stay there for a couple years? Was it was it a every couple months sort of? No, situation? on on uh, on the FGB team. Now, now there were people. Um, interestingly, while we were over there, I mean, some of the some of the people involved are, are in great positions at NASA right now. Bill Gerstemeyer was uh, he was in Moscow full time uh, trying to get the control center built up. Oh. And um, Mark Geyer's the center director here. He was brought on as my schedules guy for FGB. And uh, <laughs> Kirk Shireman is uh, uh, space station manager. He was my GNC guy. So all right. Basically, what I did is from the program office is I took uh, subsystem specialists out of mostly out of the engineering directorate. Mm-hmm. I had a, a small staff that was full time FGB. The rest were all the technical experts that we pulled for all the subsystems. Uh, from across the uh, the whole center, and uh, mostly out of engineering, and we developed relationships with a direct counterpart for them in Moscow, mm-hmm. at Khrunichev, uh, in some cases at Energia, um, and they the teams. My biggest job was trying to support everything that they needed to do to do their jobs to make things happen. You know, yeah, I, uh, they were the technical expertise. My job. Um, was to make the decisions and give them direction. You know, right. My, my uh, classic example is is you've got a power team and a and a, a thermal team, and the power team is trying to generate as much power as they can, which of course a byproduct of that is heat. The thermal team is trying to cool everything down the best they can, which will freeze everything if you let them. And and my job was to say, okay, you know. Here's where we're going to cut this. Uh, we need a balance here, and it's across and all the systems, the integration work. So okay, um, but I relied very heavily on the real experts on on their respective systems. And, okay. Uh, the way we ended up signing the the certification of flight readiness, you'll see um, the U.S. signature, the Russian signature for his counterpart, the Boeing subsystem signature for each of the subsystems, and then. I signed, and then I think Randy Brinkley was the uh, program manager at the time. He signed, and, and the Russian signed. So, uh, so we've got accountability all the way through. But, okay. Um, so, back to your question, my teams, um, there was almost constantly someone there. In addition to the the locals we had in the office, um, depending on the phase we were in, uh, sometimes there wasn't anybody there. Other times we would we would have technical interchange meetings. Um, probably every two to three months where we would take a, the whole team over either there or bring the Russians here and uh, work out details, particularly if we were making a, a modification or had an issue on something. Uh, at other times, it was smaller teams, groups of five to seven that we would send 
one way or the other again just to to work things out hmm so <laughs> um with that much going back and forth and with a lot of the folks um based here in houston how how did you uh oversee the project then from from the states well we again we were in russia a lot yeah 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 um delta became a very friendly airline oh i see i see and at okay. one at one point uh george abbey actually chartered uh an airline or one, oh. of, the, one of the old uh government charters to okay. uh, charter us back and forth because we were carrying so many people back and forth so many people but we so were often. we were constantly i mean you know it's like anything else uh we're in constant communication phone yeah. emails uh yeah computer links uh we're doing all these things uh you know so we had the we had the technical side as well as the contract side i mean this was uh mm. something that had never been done before um a collaboration like this because it it truly was a um, a joint effort this wasn't a piece of russian hardware that we gave a few pieces to it wasn't um, um u.s hardware that the russians had input on uh we we worked very hard on this as a and i would have to say it you know again it's the module's different than the original, original Russian module. It's got all this integration in it. Um, one of the things that carried over some of the interesting things, that unique things about the FGB is, since it was originally a Russian contribution, um, it kind of put us in a bad spot when all of a sudden they said, we agreed that we were gonna pay for the FGB because hmm. it was launched on a Russian Proton and I wanted to avoid um, suddenly them coming back saying well now you've got to pay for the rocket and you've got to pay for the fairing to put on it and and so i rewrote the contract or, or wrote the contract that we ended up signing um with all that integrated that they were still responsible for supplying us stuff because sure our hands were full trying to build a module and right. uh you know i mean things from load testing you know i, I mean i had people over there doing load testing and and we were running tests back here to uh, to verify things and um we were busy on the technical side so yeah um we ended up ended up having to waive some of the far's to uh to do some of the stuff we were trying to do far Con um federal acquisition regulations okay okay there's a set of you know they govern everything that the that nasa or the government buys mm -hmm. and uh, some of those things just wouldn't work for what we were trying to do um one of the things is that on when a contractor builds a piece of hardware and delivers it to the government, there's a DD-250 that basically transfers title. Well, I deferred that until the FGB had been, until the FGB docked with the service module because that was the, the first on-orbit, well, the first test was, you know, other than all the ground testing, the first test was successfully getting to orbit. That was a milestone. Um, <laughs> successfully mating with the node was another milestone right and that kind of checked out the other end the uh the next thing was until the service module was docked we couldn't verify all those interfaces so i put off the dd250 until after the service module was docked huh. and and then still held some money until we pulled in the retracted the solar rays because that's something that was not standard on russian on any of the russian designs so yeah. So even uh, the negotiations were ongoing. Even oh, throughout, there was, throughout yeah, all there that. was always something coming <laughs> up. Yeah, I bet. Always and and trying to get uh, hardware back and forth was interesting. I mean, we hand carried uh, the uh, 
mating ad or the docking targets, the PMA targets to to do the shuttle docking with that were installed on orbit or installed on the module before launch. Right. Because we just had so much trouble getting things through customs sometimes. Huh. Um, even, you know, it, it's it's kind of unbelievable the way people pull together to make this happen in some wow. cases. Wow. Yeah, so. that's true. Because, sure, yeah, in, instead of going through customs, you just avoid that and go above it. Well, no, it, it's not really avoiding that. It's uh, <laughs> it's that, let's put it this way, NASA had no special favors trying to go through U.S. or Russian customs. Sure. Just because we have NASA stickers and critical space hardware all on it, sometimes that stuff would still get hung up. Yeah. Uh, you had to go through bureaucrats on on all sides, and, and sometimes uh, the only way around that was to put it in your hand carry luggage. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and, and that's just something that, you know, you typically don't do with space hardware. <laughs> now, now, you're kind of referencing, uh, on top of Zarya, all this other stuff that's going on, because it is an international space station. You already said you were working on S1P1, these, sure. these elements of the trust. So how was the space station in the background while Zarya is going through this development from 93 all the way up through launch in 98? What's going on with the space station during that time? Well, of course, all the space station hardware was, was progressing yeah. to meet. We all had... Uh, launch schedules we were trying to meet mm -hmm. and uh, Bill Bastido was leading the the US node uh, 2A um, all the hardware was progressing um, I occasionally would talk to the people that I, the same people that designed the S1 truss and and would have done the P1 truss with me or the same people that were working on it when uh, when it finally launched for those managers so um, you know they they were all Everybody was pushing hard to get to where we needed to go. Yeah, definitely. Now, eventually, you got to launch, right? Yes. And you oversaw a lot of launch yes, as well. Yes, I was there for the launch, yeah. Okay. Oh, you were there? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> so tell me about that. Tell me about getting ready right before launch day up through the launch itself. Uh, we had, well, I mean, we did all the uh, checkout of the hardware before it left Moscow. Okay. Uh, the Russians actually transported the hardware up to Bakunor. And of course, we had hmm. we'd been in Bakunor five or six times for things prior to launch day as well. Hmm. Um, I think we were there for the launch. We were probably there two or three weeks before the launch. I don't remember exactly okay. when we showed up, but I mean, we had a lot of uh, final reviews and things to do yeah. on site. Um, some of the, again, things that you don't really think about, but we because this was a joint effort, um, I had JSCPAO people there, and they were out setting up cameras, and they had they had been allowed to to film a couple of the Soyuz launches before that to practice camera placement and stuff. They managed to uh. fry a few cameras. Uh, All right, that close. Oh yeah, yeah. One <laughs> of the one of the guys here that was a good friend uh, was had come back from one of those uh, we had we had met in in uh, Bacchanor the one time and he said that they'd been out uh, setting up their their equipment in one of the sites where they'd set up a camera they looked around suddenly and everybody all the Russians were gone and they figured they better get out of there and they just barely got out before the rocket went off and no one told them uh, no one told no <laughs> oh, one bothered man. to tell them to move so wow yeah so it was a you know it's a different <laughs> it's a different environment definitely I've only been to uh, been to Baikonur once Karaganda for a landing, but uh, you know, me coming in as uh, as late as I am in this already existing years and years, decades sure, of sure. experience, everything is pretty much 
like it's a process. It's now. a process. Right, it's right. routine now. Right. Right. Um, but I'm sure. I mean, how was it going and doing all these things in in Baikonur, the strange country, the strange place in Moscow? Nothing is nothing is set for you. You kind of have to build it for the ground up. We did. I mean, everything was. Uh, uh, like I said, when I first went to Moscow, it was black and white. Yeah. Um, we were followed. We when we first went to Moscow, we were largely staying at the Penta Hotel, probably still stay at the Penta or the Radisson. Um, we would be escorted to our rooms by a hotel matron, I'll call her. Okay. And she would, once we were in our room, she'd lock the door. And if we wanted to get out of her room, we called the desk and they would come. They were, they would escort us around, but we didn't go anywhere by ourselves. Wow. Um, when we were out on the street, we always had a, an escort following 50 yards behind us, huh. uh, following everything we did. They, they said it was for our protection, but, uh, you know, who knows? Sure. Um, in every meeting, um, pretty much clear to the end, we had a, a Russian security specialist, one or two guys standing in the room somewhere who uh, were just monitors. They never said a word, never did anything. <laughs> um, they just kind of... I guess made sure people did what they were supposed to do. Okay. Um, it was, uh, what was re really interesting on that, as it turned out, is um, I flew B-52s back in Southeast Asia. And, and it, we were at one of the after parties after one of the big TIMS, technical interchange meetings, and one of these Russian security guys was there. And we started talking because he was off duty. And all of a sudden this, this gentleman who had never said a word He's, of course, he's had some vodka by this point, but he's very friendly, and uh, <laughs> and we get to talking. It turns out he was uh, um, a young lieutenant in the Russian rocket forces in Vietnam at a SAM site about the same time that I was dropping bombs over there. So uh, all of a sudden, we were the best friends. You know? <laughs> <laughs> wow. from, from then on, every time he was involved in one of the meetings, he brought me patches, he brought me this, he brought me that. But it, uh, you know, the... the the way we crossed paths was just fascinating. I mean, there were yeah. uh, a lot of things like that 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 you don't uh, you don't appreciate, you know, until you yeah. <laughs> but small world after small all. Small world. Yes, you definitely. in the cockpit and him behind a Sam. That's uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very, we, we couldn't yeah. verify that we were ever exactly the right, same spot right. at the right time, but we might have been. <laughs> And there you are working together. How yeah, about that? Uh -huh. Yeah. So. Uh, uh, let's let's jump back to launch. I think we got okay, sidetracked sure, a little bit, sure. but uh, but you know you said you're get you're there a little bit beforehand, getting everything staged three weeks right. before I think, and then uh, comes right before the launch itself. This is at uh, was this the Baikonur Cosmodrome then, or is this someplace else? No, it was at Baikonur. Baikonur. Uh, okay. Yeah, it was at Baikonur. Um, we were there when the FTB came in and and uh, was lifted into the vertical and, and everything. And it was, it, was a, uh, it was a really unique experience and a really a pride moment to see yeah. the NASA logo next to the RSA logo on a, on a Russian rocket there. You That's know, cool. The first time that had ever been done. So, right. Um, you asked earlier about thing, other things were going on. Well, we were doing the FGB. Um, John McMahon was trying to develop the, the docking adapter with him. Mm -hmm. um, so that was off on the side that we ended up using and stuff. So, I mean, there was a lot of other activities going on. Yeah. Um, as we got close to launch day, uh, of course, we had dignitaries from all over NASA and the U.S. and people showing up. And 
they mm -hmm. wanted to be there for the launch. The actual launch team, um, both Mark Geyer and Kirk Shireman were there. Um, I had probably uh, 10 of the people from my team, plus a couple from Boeing, uh, there for the launch. And, um, you know, it was it was fascinating to watch. It was kind of a cloudy day, so uh, <laughs> it would have been nice if it had been a little clearer, but yeah. it was still. Um, after the launch, we all gathered in a big auditorium, and um, you had all the agency heads for all the international partners up on the stage, and we're sitting in the front row, and um, it was an interesting thing to see. Yeah. So. Were you getting communication from Mission Control in oh, Moscow yeah. Oh, yeah. that everything yeah. was going well? Yep. Sure. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I'm sure that was something to set up, too, was actual the, the mission operations side of things from Houston to oh, Moscow. Yeah. yeah, clearly. I mean, we, yeah. we had quite a few issues. Like I said, Gerstmeyer was there trying to develop a control center in Moscow or right. a concept, working concept. Uh, John Curry, I think, was he was a flight director at the time. He was the one that basically... Uh, did a lot of the FGB stuff with us and and it was a you know we had part of the ongoing discussions were who's going to be in control of this vehicle while it's on orbit yeah. for a year and uh, you know this is back where some of the Russians thought it should be a Russian only and some of the U.S. said no we're paying for it it ought to be us and, and we're involved in this too it should be us so it was some interesting uh, compromises worked out on some of this stuff so, uh, <laughs> okay well I'll in the end, um, what ended up happening was uh, who who was monitoring it throughout the next few years. Both. There you go. <laughs> Both. We had a U.S. Okay. control center and a and a Russian control center, and we had people there, and and I'm sure they had somebody here. I was. Yeah. Um, I know I was back here for the two A launch, and uh, or in KSC, and then back here immediately afterward for the docking. Okay. And um, and I'm pretty sure there was a Russian representative for two here. So. Okay. You know, it was. Uh, it was a quite an achievement. I think everybody was really, you know, speechless. Yeah. Probably the word I'd use. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so this this was a big project for you. You were the program manager for quite some time. And then uh, after FGB and, and you know, you, you went through all this negotiation and reworks and how is this going to be framed for the future, uh, what did you do at NASA after that? Well, it, kind of interesting. I went through that early negotiation through getting the uh, the contract resolved in Moscow and the, the initial direction, and then I was planning on going back to shuttle. Hmm. I had done EVA stuff with shuttle before, and um, and I was asked to stay on, and I, I said, well, the only way I would stay on is if you give me the first flight or or um, or something else. And, <laughs> and my theory was I'd been in space station for so long, right, and and we've been through so many redesigns. I figured the first flight had the best chance of completing. All right. <laughs> Eventually. So. Yeah. Uh, and Doug Cook is the one who uh, talked me into staying. Said, "Okay, you're you got the first flight." Okay. Um, several times during the the five years it took us to build, I was uh, um, I actually turned down uh, promotion of the Russians. I would have taken the Russian segment, and I turned it down. There was just too many. I felt there were. For two reasons, there's too many things going on. Too many things that were unusual about the FGB that we had done. Again, rewriting FARs, fighting with um, budget people outside of the agency, GAO and things. Um, not to mention all the technical things we had going on. And plus, I, I felt I was in a unique position 
from beginning to end. I really wanted to see this thing launch. So, yes. So I stayed to the very end. Um, after that, I was talked into uh, starting the external carriers office huh. and space station. We built uh, a Bay 13 carrier. We built quite a few pieces of uh, external storage platforms and things and figured out how we were going to launch spares to orbit for the station. Um, after that, I went over to the uh, structures division as a deputy uh, division chief mm. and ended up um, being there through all the Columbia stuff. Mm. Uh, basically, my boss was off on a contract negotiation, so I ended up acting chief for a couple of years and then went to staff in engineering and uh, after post-Columbia and worked on the uh, repair kits and and things we were going to do there and ultimately ended up back in shuttle and uh, oh. so you know I was at the launch for all the last flights and running the debris integration team and uh, and I can happily say I was on the runway when the, the last flight landed so all right liter literally I was on the runway so wow um, so it was uh, you know it was a good, it was a fun career yeah for sure um, what's what's interesting about especially the beginning of the of your career is is you're a man i mean you're saying recognizable people to me you know i work i, I, I work with uh, kurt shireman everybody's done well sure. yeah everyone's sure. doing well but <laughs> but uh, but you <laughs> you're uh you're a manager at this point and and this and throughout your career too managing and, and leading products tell me about about what it took to be successful at that and and despite all of these back and forths to manage a team and execute the mission throughout the launch and beyond i'd say uh two things one is that uh you can't be the you might be the smartest guy in the room but you're not the smartest guy in the room and uh, <laughs> and no matter what you know you don't know everything so uh. my my first philosophy is to uh, always surround myself with the smartest people i can find yeah and that's where uh, the subsystem people, subsystem managers, those were the real technical experts on their systems. Hmm. I knew enough to be dangerous, and and I could settle arguments and and give direction after hearing the facts, you know. But uh, but they were still the experts. Yeah. And um, and you really need people that understand things and and do those as well as you need somebody to do the integration. Yeah. Um, the other thing is that. Uh, I felt a big part of my job was to, uh, uh, as a NASA person and a NASA manager on a, on a program like that or project like that, is to uh, always try to get the best value for the American people, you know, the mm -hmm. tax dollars. So um, I felt it was important to, uh, just as if you were building a house or anything else, you want a, you want a good product and you want a fair price on it. So, yeah. Uh, so it's... It's really about, you know, understanding what you need to do, understanding who is the best at doing it, and establishing good communications channels, but never letting go of that perspective of why you're doing it. Well, yeah, you have to, uh, you have to know where you're trying to go. You know, the yeah. hardest thing is to ask, find out what's the right question. Once you know the question, you can set about figuring out what the answer is going to be. Yeah. And, uh, and you can't become so rigid that... Uh, just like in this building hardware, um, you know, the view graph engineering I mentioned on the front end, uh, you look at these projects at the front end and, and it all looks great and it looks like it's nice and linear and things are going to work great. Well, that rarely works out. 
um, especially when you're you're doing things that haven't been done before or that um, in the case of a lot of the space station hardware you're talking about building with materials that don't exist yet you have a hmm. design goal you're trying to to uh, do something but and you know what you want to do but you can't just go off the shelf and put it together you've got to develop the the materials along the way so that you can do what you're trying to do and yeah. and when you're doing things like that uh, there's always problems there's always issues and mm-hmm. uh, some you've got to be ready to you never throw away where you're trying to go but you may change the path to get there yeah if there's a better path and, and you've got to be open to to see that yeah that's true you're doing new things all the time and recognizing that is part of the sure. learning process sure. um so you know you, you talked about your career going forward even seeing being on the runway for the last oh, yeah. landing that was pretty cool um but you you know you you oversaw this first part this first step in the international space station and you know i'm working right now pretty closely with what it is today a functioning laboratory in space constant uh habitation um constant hundreds of experiments per rotation as a a well-functioning laboratory and that's that's what i know but you know looking at the program from your perspective from the beginning did you anticipate that this is where it was going to go? Did it exceed your expectations? Was it different from your expectations? Looking at it now. It depends on the time frame. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and, and I say that with some hesitancy because um, when I first came into Space Station, there was, uh, there was a separate assembly node. I mean, part of the studies we were doing, uh, there was going to be the Space Station was being designed to support on-orbit assembly of and this was in the design phase but Mm. on orbit assembly of lunar transfer vehicles and mars Mm. return vehicles so the the thing that's always plagued us is that getting from the ground to low earth orbit is so costly i mean it's such Mm. an effort and so much energy is expended that if you can and of course the bigger piece you make on the ground the the more technical difficult, technically difficult as well as expensive it is as it is to get up to orbit. So if you can bring up smaller pieces and assemble them on orbit, then once you're freed of the atmosphere, you can, you can go almost anywhere or do almost anything. Right. So the original space station concept had this uh, maintenance hangar out to the side, if you would, so that yeah. uh, you could, these lunar vehicles would come back and, and you would do engine change outs and things there. Um, and then there would be another vehicle that would return whatever payload or cargo to the earth and the transfer vehicle would go back to the moon and do whatever it's going to do there so hmm. so in some respects it's disappointing that we we scrubbed all of that stuff out i mean hmm. i understand the realities and and the difficulties of getting there and that you know this is this is also difficult that it's a it's a stepping stone and again when you had to develop things to do what you're trying to do, you can't just you can't just go buy it somewhere. You have to make yeah. it happen. And um, but at the same time, we were always planning the core station to be a laboratory. And uh, and so it doesn't surprise me where we are on that. It's it's what we built it for. Right. And I think it fulfills that, that role very well. Mm-hmm. You know? um, I think someday we'll go back. We'll expand to those other things. Still, it's just uh, you got to take it one step at a time. Yeah. Now, seeing just how, just the FGB and, and going through all the changes from the beginning 
the inception of the program through all the changes and then finally launching. That kind of can translate, right, to the whole International Space Station. Just it, it did get together, but just it might take some time. You know, it's still... Oh, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. Sure, I, I probably get one or two... Well, it's not as often now. I probably get still get one call a year or somebody wanting to know something about the FGB. Oh, really? Because I've still got all this data that probably no one else has. Oh, okay. Um, but, uh, no, it was... Um, like I said, it was in the beginning. It was, it's kind of the keystone element. It's still a core part of the station. It's, it's probably I'm sure the crews these days look at it as a storage module, place to shove things because uh, there's not really uh, crew accommodations in there per se, unless you mm-hmm. want to hang out in the, the docking node and hide from everybody for a little while. But uh, <laughs> it's not where you really live and like you do on the rest of the station or do experiments. It's largely storage. But at the same time, though, it is the, still the module that's passing all that data back and forth and making those fluid connections and and everything else from one one end of the station to the other so it's yeah. it's still a core piece of the space station yeah and um and doing what it was function what it was intended to do um, yeah trying to integrate basically a, a u.s design where we were with freedom and then then alpha um with the russian design where they were with mirror and the service module is largely an offshoot of that, um, and their concepts are still largely the same. Um, there had to be something in the middle to to bring that all together, and that's what the job of the FGB was to do. So, hmm. looking at um, you starting the Zar, you know, the FGB Zarya, and then towards the end, moving on to the next program. Uh, before you did that. What do you think was some of your biggest, if not just the single biggest, takeaways from the experience of uh, your time as the program manager for FGB? Mm, how amazing the NASA people are. Okay. Um, how uh, similar some of our international partners are, yet different. Yeah. Um, you know, different, uh, um, but how well people can work together when they really have incentive to do so uh, right you know it uh but yeah the nasa people are just unparalleled i think in in my mind they're just fantastic people and um they're capable of great things yeah you know definitely um it i want to kind of end on this note and it's it's an international space station and you worked internationally and you know there was some ups and downs to it there was oh, challenges sure. <laughs> especially going in i mean i and i respect you for this is going in just you know, you said you knew the day before, here you go, you're going to Russia, <laughs> yeah. make this work. Um, but, you know, based on understanding, even through the challenges of working with different cultures, what is the benefit of um, international collaboration? Um, there's a lot of, I mean, on multiple fronts, um, mm. both just from uh, uh, getting to know other people around the world to from the technical side. I mean, we we, you know, my, my going in impression of the Russians or, or the way I would still summarize it, for example, would be that uh, we spend um, years and years developing a lighter weight material and, and uh, refining a design and it takes us forever to, to get something launched. Yeah. Whereas the Russian approach was we'll strap on another booster and launch it, you know, build it out of iron. Um, <laughs> and well, that's, that's true in some respects. Um, People don't realize it. In some cases, on on the ISS today, Russian 
mandated requirements are more stringent than NASA's requirements are in some areas. Hmm. Um, for example, we had a, um, there was a long discussion over many months or years about water quality because their standards for their crews and, and what they wanted were more stringent than what our standards were. Huh. And ours are pretty stringent, as you can imagine. <laughs> so, um, you know, it. Uh, another example would be um, having worked on the MB3 stuff. I had an ICD with shuttle that we were uh, we were ready to. We were actually working our integration with shuttle for the MB3 launch for Space Station Freedom. Uh, sitting through all those meetings with the uh, orbiter people were were kind of fascinating. I'd watch other payloads on the same flight, some of these universities and things that were trying to fly things, mm -hmm. and they would come in and and uh, with their design, and I'd watch the orbiter people tell them, that's not good enough, go home and, you know, come back another day. Wow. And, uh, and we're talking months in some cases. Um, one of those early meetings with the Russians, of course we had our people with us, and um, someone didn't like something about the way the Russians were proposing to do something, and and they said, well, this is the way we do it at shuttle. And uh, the Russians responded right back, well, we've been flying for 30 years, and we think that's stupid. Oh. <laughs> so it kind of forced us to go back and look at at some of the things that we had traditionally done. And, yeah, um, take a look at yourself. Some of our processes and things. And, yeah. And, um, and you end up taking the, the best of both worlds, I think, is what you're you're really shooting for. And uh, I think the product of of our collaboration is better than it would have been with either of us trying to do it individually. Yeah. You know? Different perspective and maybe a little bit of humility. Oh, most definitely. <laughs> I mean, uh, to, again, you're not the smartest guy in the room necessarily. You, know? <laughs> you may go in thinking you are, but if you leave that way, something's wrong. So, yeah. You know. Well, Doug, this has been uh, a fascinating conversation and definitely an interesting perspective. It's nothing that, you know, I did a decent amount of research to, to try to put this together, but this is, uh, this is a, this was fascinating. So I really appreciate you coming in and coming on today. Glad to help. Anytime. Hey, thanks for sticking around. So it was a very interesting conversation with Doug Drew. He gave us a nice perspective of that first launch that started the whole thing, the International Space Station, just 20 years ago. So if you want to listen to more podcasts uh, of everything going around uh, NASA, we have Rocket Ranch, NASA in Silicon Valley, Gravity Assist, hosted by Dr. Jib Green um, up at NASA's headquarters. Uh, we're talking about the International Space Station now. It's the 20th anniversary, but we're going to have launches and landings of astronauts and cosmonauts coming here soon uh, to continue to live and work aboard the International Space Station. So go to nasa.gov NTV to find the schedule on when that's happening. Otherwise, you can follow all the happenings of the space station on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or the International Space Station on all of those accounts. Use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform to submit an idea. Make sure to mention it's for Houston. We have a podcast. We'll bring it right on the show. This episode was recorded on October 9th, 2018. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Pat Ryan, Norm Moran, and Kelly Humphreys. Thanks again to Mr. Doug Drury for taking the time to come on the show. Stay tuned for part two of our ISS Beginnings episode with Mr. Jerry Ross to discuss the mission that followed Zarya 
STS-88 and attached the Unity module to Zarya. And the astronauts and cosmonauts entered the International Space Station in low Earth orbit for the first time. We'll be back with that episode next week.